a number of years ago when I was still in my engineering career, I went through a, a time when I was beginning to wonder, and I was wondering, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? Am I serving in the right way? And so I began to pray and I began to think this through. And I came up with a question. What should I do? Should I stay in my job? Uh, should I look for another job in, my in an engineering career? Should I do something completely different? It wasn't that I didn't really, it wasn't that I hated my job. It wasn't that I was desperately unhappy doing it. Um, but it just didn't feel quite right either. I wonder how many others have faced those sorts of situations in your life. And maybe even today you're, you're wondering, what should I do? Or to put it another way, what does God want from me? So to try and answer that question, you know, we, we look and we say, well, what does, what does God want me to do? And being good, well-trained believers who grew up in Sunday school, we open our Bibles and we look there and we say, well, maybe the Bible has something to say about this. Maybe because the Bible has answers for every situation in life, doesn't it? And so we turn to our Bibles. Or maybe we go online and we Google the Bible Answer Man, who, which is somebody you can actually find there. And <coughs> Excuse me, I've got the, the same cold everybody else has. <coughs> uh, us pastors and preachers aren't immune from those things. Um, you can go online and you can look for those answers to those questions. What does God want from me? We have these kind of questions. With our, what should I do with my life? What direction should I go? You, come to, you might come to a point and you say, who should I marry? What company should I work for? And you start to get worried. You think, if I get this wrong, God is going to say, sorry, you missed it. Now the rest of your life is going to be miserable. Because at that one point when you were 25 years old, you chose to work for Microsoft instead of Apple. I really wanted you to work for Apple. Now the rest of your life is going to suck. And so you worry about this. You think, boy, i got to get this just right. Maybe, maybe you think God's going to say to you, you should have listened harder. You should have read your Bible more. You should have asked better questions. And so it makes you want to stop and scream, God, what do you want from me? Just what do you want from me? For me, I never got a clear, divine revelation from God what He wanted me to do. I longed for someone to come along to me and tell me, you know, God has shown me exactly what you should be doing. That would have been, that would have been so refreshing, so encouraging. But I never had that. But a gradual realization did come on me after about a year, over about a year. I prayed I listened to others, including my pastor, and I came to the realization that God did want me to do something. So I took a step of faith. I quit my job and I went to seminary. That's not going to be the answer for everybody, and I'm not suggesting it is, but that journey of, of asking, you know, what do you want me to do, God? What does, what does God want from me? We're still left a little bit with that question. And we can search every word of Scripture and we can still find some parts of our life we just don't find the answers to those questions. But when we look at our Bibles, 
we will find lots of answers to those questions. What does God want from me? It, you might not find which company to work for, or which person to marry, or which house to buy. But the Bible does give a lot of answers to that question, what does God want from me? And one such passage is Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Let me read that for us. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah was writing to the people of God, and he was writing during the time of three different kings of Judah, and we can read about that in Micah chapter 1. It was the kings, the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that puts him about the same time as the prophet Isaiah, who also had interactions with King Hezekiah. Micah was preaching a message of judgment. He was preaching a message of God's plan. He was preaching a message of a rebuke on the leaders for the society of that day. And he preaches a little bit, speaks a little bit about the Messiah that's coming as well. And so he comes, when we come to chapter 6, he is presenting God's case against the people of Israel. He brings the charges. God speaks through him to deliver the charges God has to God's people. So he says, this, these are the problems that I see. And so he says in verse 2, he says, Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. <coughs> He's using legal language here. He's talking about God Himself bringing a charge against His people. This is not another nation. This is not the Supreme Court. This is not some judge. Oh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all set up here now. <laughs> he's bringing all of these things. He's not, he's, sorry, he's not uh, bringing these charges. It's the God of the universe that's bringing these charges against the people. And he, he brings the charges, first of all, by reminding his people what, they've, what he has done for them. So God reminds the people. He says, my people, what have I done for you? Have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I sent Moses to lead you, he says. He, he says, remember your journeys that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so he summarizes a couple millennium of history in a couple of uh, sentences. And he says, look at what I've done for you. And then the voice shifts. You see, now this is, this is the people speaking back to God and saying, God, what do you want from me? After God has told them what he has done for them, they in turn stop and they say, okay, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And he says, what, 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? We are singing praises. Somehow this is, resonates with what we've been doing here today. This, this morning, if you think back on the songs we were singing, we were doing that. Uh, we were coming before the Lord. We were, uh, we were bowing down before the exalted God. And they're saying, what should we do? What should that look like? And he says, should I come before Him with burnt offerings? So, so they acknowledge God and His position and they say, yes, we should be bringing these offerings to God. That should be part of what we're doing. That should be part of our, of our life. So, should these burnt offerings be a calves a year old? That's a reasonable thing. It's a fairly significant offering, but it's a reasonable thing for uh, someone to bring to God. But then he raises the bar a little higher. He said, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? So maybe not just one calf, but now how about a thousand rams? This maybe is a reflection of an acknowledgement of the sin that they have in their lives. That it's not an, that, that maybe their feeling, their, their guilt is so great that one, uh, one, one, uh, uh, one uh, calf is not enough. And so we need a thousand rams instead to cover the sin. They raise the bar a little higher and you get a sense of frustration here. Uh, maybe not a thousand rams, maybe ten thousand rivers of oil. I don't know, when I read this, I get a sense of frustration. They're saying, what do you want, God? Do you want a, a calf? Ten, a thousand rams? Ten thousand rivers of oil? How much do I have to give you? And then he goes to the ridiculous. And he says, how about my firstborn? How about my children? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Will that be enough for you? And this is totally outrageous. This suggestion, because God has clearly said a number of times to them, human sacrifices, He uses words like, oh, they're an abomination to God. Don't do those things, He says very clearly. And so this suggestion that, that, that the people seem to be making is just out of control. And in some ways, the whole idea is a little bit out of control. What can we give to God? Everything is His anyway. How is us giving Him a thousand rams really going to help Him and bless Him? Because they're His already anyway. What can we give to God that God doesn't already own? So it all belongs to God. And then the answer comes back to them. In response to that frustration, what do you want from me, God? The prophet Micah gives these words to the people. And he says, he's shown you. He's shown you what you need to do. It's very simple. Act justly, love mercy, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. Does this ring a bell with anybody? Does this sound somewhat familiar? What does uh, the, this question of bringing these offerings to God... You know, when I was reading this, I, what came to my mind was when King Saul gets uh, instructions, and this is in, in um, 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, King Saul gets instructions from the Lord to go 
and to totally destroy the Amalekites. And the reasoning behind that's a topic for another sermon, but that's what God asks him to do. And he says, totally destroy them, wipe them out completely. Everything, all the people, all the animals, everything, completely gone. Saul comes back from battle. And he tells Samuel, and Samuel is the priest and a prophet, and he tells Samuel that he has done what the Lord has asked him to do. And Samuel makes that uh, wonderful statement that I love so much. He says, What then is the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of cattle that I hear? If you really did what God, you, what God had told you to do, why do I hear animals? Because you were supposed to wipe them all out. You didn't do what God asked you to do. King Saul brought back the animals and he tries to cover it up and he says, oh, I was going to offer them as sacrifice. And then Samuel rebukes him and he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of the rams. God wants him to simply obey, to do what he has said. You know, after it's afterwards to go and present an offering because of your sin, God's like, it would have been better if you hadn't sinned in the first place, actually. You know, I, there's a recognition. Yes, okay, you're bringing this offering. You're repenting of your sins. You know they need to, uh, there needs to be a payment for your sins. But it would have been better in the first place if you had just done what God wanted. And that's what Micah is saying here in verse in Micah chapter six, verse eight. He's shown you what he wants you to do. Don't bring these offerings. Instead, he says, do these things. So when we cry out and we ask, what do you want from me, God? Here's some of the answers to that question. Act justly, love mercy and walk humbly before the Lord. Sorry about that. So let's think today. Let's think about today about the first one, about justice. What does this mean? When you go to the dictionary, it says the maintenance or administration of what is just. Well, that's one of those dictionary definitions that doesn't help you much, right? Because it's just it feels a little circular. So he says, well, it's the administration of what is just. So what is just? It said acting or being in conformity with what is moral, morally upright or good. So it's got something to do with doing what is morally upright. The correct moral thing to do. That's what justice is, is doing that. This word in Hebrew is called mishpat. And uh, that's, the, that's the word in Hebrew. And one Jewish scholar says this about that word. It says, it refers to the rule of law through which disputes are settled by right rather than might. By right rather than might. Law distinguishes between innocent and guilty. It establishes a set of rules binding on all by means of which the members of a society act in such a way as to pursue their own interests without infringing on the rights and freedoms of others. So justice is where you do what you feel God has called you to do. Pursue your own interests without infringing on the rights or freedoms of others. So without harming others. And he says finally, a law-governed society is a place 
of mishpat as a place of justice. A law governed society is a place of justice. We can ask the question then, thinking about justice and thinking about what it means, we can ask the question, where does this justice come from? How do we know what is morally upright and good? And as I started to look into this, I realized there's a whole branch of philosophy talking about uh, justice and morality. And I got into things much deeper than I was able to comprehend as I was looking at this. But um, we can simply say that God is morally upright and good. And so when he says we should do something, we should do that. And that will lead us to justice because it is coming from a God who is just and good. And so when God tells us to do something, by extension, what He's telling us to do is just and good. And so that's what we can look at. We uphold those things that God has told us to do. And then we will be doing justice. What we find when we look at the Bible and we start to look at the the idea of justice is we actually find uh, some help in looking and seeing what is the reverse of justice. Because the Bible talks a lot about perverting or distorting justice. Much more than it talks about keeping justice, it tells us these are the things that you do that pervert justice. And basically, sin is something uh, that, uh, that is good that gets perverted or changed, distorted, and it becomes an injustice. So anything in our lives can be distorted and perverted and changed and made wrong, even though it might be right. Our desire to work is good. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with having a desire to go to work and earn a living and support our families and ourselves until it gets perverted by workaholism where that becomes the God in your life. Our desire to provide for our families is a good one until it becomes greed. Justice is a good thing, but it can also get perverted by our sins. Exodus 23 helps us here to see some of these things. And in many places in the Bible, we read about the perversion of justice and injustice that goes on. But we see in the beginning of Exodus chapter 23, it talks about justice and mercy. And it says we're not to bring false charges against someone. We're not so you don't accuse someone of doing something when when you know they haven't really done it. We're not to bring false witnesses against people, so we need to tell the truth. He says, Don't follow the crowd in wrongdoing. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. Just because everybody is doing it doesn't make it right. When you and he says, When your enemy's donkey is wandering off, take it back to him. But isn't our temptation to say, hey, look, that's my neighbor's donkey. Yeah, he's, he's going to walk off. My neighbor's going to lose out. And I don't really like my neighbor, so he deserves to lose that donkey. And the Word of God says, even if you see your neighbor's donkey wandering off, you grab it and you take it back to him. Even if you see your enemy's donkey wandering off, you take it back to him because... That's the just, that's the right thing to do. Don't bribe. You know that little extra you give to make sure something gets done in your favor? You don't do that. 
Don't oppress the weak and powerless in society. Instead, give them a hand up instead of holding them down for your own benefit. And these are the types of things that uh, are injustices. They're not just. They're a perversion of justice. And just in Exodus 23, it gives us lots of examples of what that looks like. But we know about it. I don't think this is anything deep and profound that is new and a radical understanding. We know what, to, what is right. We know what is just. We know when you're weighing your customer's produce to charge them. You know, if you put your thumb on the scale and add a little bit more, you know in your back of your mind that's not right. And God's saying, these are, these are the things you should, you should not do. You should act justly. Interesting, as I looked at justice, there was also the issue of justice and fairness. And we might struggle with that. What's just and what's, what's fair? Are they the same things? They're kind of related, two sides of the coin, but they're not quite the same thing. Someone described it as, as this. Let's say there's a group of you driving down the road and you're all in different cars and you're doing, you know, the little sign on the side of the road says 50. You know, that, that's actually telling you you shouldn't drive more than 50. It's not a suggestion about how fast you should drive, right? So let's say you, uh, you're driving down the road in a 50 zone and there's, there's several of uh, cars going along together. You're doing about 70, okay? There's a policeman at the side of the road. He jumps out. He pulls you over. And you, 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 you cringe a little because you know what's coming. You're going to get a ticket. You're going to get a fine. You're going to get some points. But there's something about it that doesn't seem right. It seems maybe like it's an injustice. Why me? There was a whole group of us that were doing this wrong. Well, what you're experiencing is it seemed unfair. But you were breaking the law. So it's perfectly just for you to face the penalty for breaking the law. There was no injustice there. There was something that seemed a little unfair. So it's not an injustice, but it seems unfair. Another thing I came across as I was looking at this is that studies with animals have shown that they respond to fairness. And they've done this both with rats and monkeys. And somehow they, uh, they do these experiments that these researchers do and they discover that uh, they respond, these animals respond to fairness. And in one report it said, this is consistent with the notion that being treated fairly satisfies a basic need. So even these animals, they, they could put up with anything as long as they saw everyone else in the group was having to put up with it as well. But when they were singled out for some special treatment, then they responded to that. In some ways, this means maybe if we think about it for us, we can tolerate injustice as long as the injustice is applied fairly and evenly to everyone. And maybe that's what happens in some societies. But not really, because in the back of our minds, we know even if we're being, everyone's being treated the same, we know, no, this is, this is not justice happening here. And so we want more than just to be treated fairly, evenly with everybody else. We, we do want justice. We understand that. So, there's justice. And Micah, back to Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Micah says we're to act justly. 
So there is justice, but it's not enough for us to think about it. It's not enough for us to write a blog post about justice. There's not enough for us to ponder the meaning of the word, but he says you should act justly. You need to do something. And we were singing about that too. Let us not just sit there and think about it, but let's do something. Micah says we should act justly, not think about it. Or think someone else should do something. Someone, that, that unknown someone off there somewhere should do something. And so nothing gets done. I wonder what Micah would say to us if he was speaking to us today. Would he say, get on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and retweet some great quote about justice and, and that's fine. I don't think so. Somehow I think he would, he would say the same thing today that he said several thousand years ago. He would say, act justly. Do it. Behave in a certain way. What does it mean to act justly? Well, as I, when I thought about it, I think of the concerned citizens in the 1750s in England who saw the desperate situation of families and workers in the factories at the time and they were toiling away in, in miserable, miserable conditions. And education was not mandatory. And so some of the, 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 the wealthier in society, their children were going to school, but those factory workers who couldn't afford it, their children often worked alongside them in the factories, working six days a week, 12 or 13 hours a day under desperate, unsafe and unhealthy conditions. A man by the name of Robert Rakes took it upon himself to teach the children on Sunday, the only day of the week they had off. And he started to teach them to read and write from the Bible. This was in the 1750s. Robert was in about the 1780s. Many other um, people followed suit. And from his one small effort in 1785, by 1789, they had 250,000 children in Sunday school because Robert saw the injustice of children working alongside their parents in factories. And he said, we need to do something. And by 1831, so about 50 years later, there were one and a quarter million children in Sunday school learning to write and being given a religious education. And this actually became the foundation for the state public school system in Britain for children, the school system for children there. But it started with, with, with a few individuals looking and saying there is something fundamentally wrong in our society. Children need to have education. They need to know how to read and write. And it started a whole series of reforms that went through uh, the, the workplace. When I think of acting justly, I think of a man like William Wilberforce who at the age of 25 became a Christian and in 1785, uh, he became a Christian in 1785 and about two years later, he was campaigning in earnest for the abolition of the slave trade. And he spent the rest of his life working for reform in society to bring justice. William Wilberforce, one person who saw an injustice was touched by it and said, I need to do something about this. And he gathered people around him and they came together and they reformed society. His reputation at the end of his life was such that his family wanted to be uh, wanted him to be buried in the town where he was from. And, 
And others rallied around and said, no, he needs to be buried in Westminster Abbey because of his importance in changing society. I think of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian in the 1930s. And he spoke out against the Nazis and what they were doing in Germany even before World War II. He condemned Hitler when he was elected and he said, he said that Germany is turning into a, a, a cult where we worship this idol called Hitler. And he was so clear and plain in saying this. And of course, that didn't earn him any friends in the Nazi movement. And even in 1933, even well before World War II started, he was speaking about the Nazis against the Nazis' treatment of the Jews in Germany. And he said the church must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, the ones who've got run over, but they must jam the spoke in the wheel itself. They must stop this. Not just help the people who are victims of the injustice, but they have to stop the injustice at its core. Obviously, he was not popular in the Nazi ranks. And later, he fled to America fearing for his life, but he returned to Germany in 1939 because he said, how can I be in safety and security in America when my fellow Germans are laboring under the impression, oppression of these Nazis? I have to go back. So he went sort of into the lion's den, so to speak. He went back to Germany in 1939 to face the Nazis, to continue to speak out against them. And he was active in churches, preaching sermons against the injustices he saw in society. And despite the persecution, he continued to speak out. And no matter what they did, he spoke again and again, was finally imprisoned in 1943. It's always a dangerous move to imprison the clergy. But the Nazis finally had had enough of him. And in 1943, they put him in prison where he continued to run church services among the prisoners, continued to preach and speak and get letters out that are published. And he was finally executed at dawn on the 9th of April, 1945, because he stood for injustice. He stood against the injustice. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. and his clarion call, not for uprisings, not for revolutions, not for murder, but his clarion call for justice. All he wanted was to see the African Americans have justice in America. And he spoke out against them and he lost his life for that. Can I encourage you today to spend a half an hour before you watch the Super Bowl, go to YouTube and listen to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Your life will never be the same. If you haven't heard it, your life will never be the same again. It is just a call. In this society, and this was not so many years ago, this is 1963, he is calling for justice in society. We need to simply treat each other with justice. Be fair and follow the laws in our dealings with others. That's simple, basic justice. And maybe we won't be the William Wilberforces and the Martin Luther King Juniors in the world, but we have a circle in our life where we can be working for justice. When we see injustice, don't turn a blind eye. Do something about it. 
write a letter to the editor, write a letter to your MP, write to your MLA. Do something concrete. We can pray, Thy kingdom come. The Lord's Prayer gives us, Jesus gives us this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are prayers of the kingdom of God to come and bring justice and righteousness. Can we just pray, Thy kingdom come. We can work for the benefit of the needy in society here locally and around the world. Work for the marginalized, the widow, the, the widows, the fatherless, the orphans. The poor, the hungry, the needy, the strangers, the weak, the oppressed, the downtrodden. So they get justice and are treated fairly. Help out at the downtown east side. Do something in your neighborhood. Is one of your neighbors in hospital? Can you come alongside and help? Do they need help shoveling the snow, especially this time of year? Give them a hand. Work for justice in our own small way, in our own small circles that we have. So we come back to the question, then, what does God want from me? Micah and his fellow Old Testament prophets cried out for the people of God to do justice. A follower of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to do justice as well. Moses, in Deuteronomy 16.20, he says, follow justice and justice alone. The psalmist in Psalm 33 verse 5 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Amos, in Amos, the prophet Amos in chapter 5, verse 24 says, Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 13 to 14 says, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. He's talking about justice here. Justice is a part of the Old Testament. Justice is a part of what Jesus taught us. Lord, help us to work for justice in this society. Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the challenge that it gives us. Even from the prophet Micah who spoke so many years ago, he reminds us today to act justly. Lord, help us to open our eyes to see the the injustice around us. Help us to see those who need a hand. And Lord, help us to see our part in bringing justice here in this city, in our neighborhood, in this country, and around the world. We ask You to show us how each one of us can have a part to play in that. In Jesus' name, Amen.